book of Romans, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can uh, use one of those in the seats in front of you. You'll find our passage on page 940 in our few Bibles as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this great letter. Let's begin reading this morning in verse 17. In verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We're dealing here this morning with a very important question. A question in which The stakes are very high. We're dealing this morning with the question of how can we discern our status before the true and living God? How can a person know where they stand with God? Paul has answered that for us in several ways over the last few paragraphs of Romans. Back in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul describes all humanity. And he gives the same indictment of all of us. He says, are you a child of Adam? Are you a human being? Are you a sinner? Then you can know your status before God apart from Christ. That all people by nature stand under the just wrath of God. And even today we live in the consequences of that judgment. And we are headed towards a final judgment day. But there are some who, who would read Romans 1 verses 18 through 32 and say, I'm not there. I'm the exception. In particular, probably some of the Jews of Paul's day might would have thought that because of their special privileges as the old covenant people of God, that they would not be included in Romans 1 18 through 32. And so Paul begins to take some other lines of argument to show that they too 
stand under the righteous wrath of God. Romans 2, verses 1 through 5, he hits right at the heart of their judgmental attitudes towards others. And he says that the very things that you look down on the, on the Gentiles for, the other things that you look down on, on pagans for doing, they are in you as well. You show by your judging of them that you know those things are wrong, and yet you still do them yourself. And so he says that your very judgmentalism will stand against you on the day of judgment and condemn you. In verses 6 through 11, Paul argues that God will render to each one according to his works. If you want to know what you can expect from God on the day of judgment, don't look to your family tree. Don't look to whose blood runs through your veins. Look to the fruit of your life. And if the fruit of your life isn't righteousness, holiness that can only come from a relationship with Christ, from union with him by faith, well, then you have no reason to believe yourself to be in good standing with God. God shows no partiality, he says in verse 11. Yes, the Jews have some privilege, and they will be judged first. And those Jews who are found believing on God through Christ will indeed enter salvation, enter heaven first. Those who have rejected God and His Messiah, Jesus Christ, because they had the greatest privilege, they will be condemned first. Verses 12 through 16, as you saw over the last couple of weeks, God holds up the natural law, the knowledge of right and wrong that God has implanted into the souls of every human being. And he says, even those people who never had the law of God on paper, those who never had the law of God on scrolls, those who never had the law of God on tablets, those who have never heard of Christianity, those who have never heard of Judaism, those who have never heard of the true God, nevertheless, they will be found guilty on the day of judgment because they still broke God's law. What law? The law that he's given every human being. And the evidence of that is our own consciences and our thoughts, which either it's try and excuse or accuse us. And so Paul has followed all of these lines of evidence and each one to bring us back to one point. All people naturally are sinners and stand under the righteous wrath of God and that's why we need Jesus Christ. And that's why we need the gospel, which is what this letter is all about. But now, if before we kind of had a feeling that Paul was probably referring mainly to Jews, now he makes it clear. He's talking directly to his own kinsmen. And he wants to remove from them two crutches that they may be trying to lean on to say, I do not need Christ for salvation. I still have this and I still have this to hold me up before God. And the two crutches, the two objections that they would post... Verses 17 through 24, we are the ones who had the law. We are the people to whom God entrusted His Word. Surely God will not judge us. That's crutch number one. And crutch number two, verses 25 through 29, 
We are the ones who are circumcised. We are the ones who received the sign of the covenant that shows we are God's people. Surely God will not condemn us. And so now Paul, in these two paragraphs, removes the first crutch and then the second to show you are utterly helpless before God and your only hope is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And my prayer is that if there's any person in this room this morning and you are relying on anything else other than Jesus and 100% Jesus for your right standing with God, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your hope of heaven, that that crutch will be kicked out from under you this morning and you will see your helplessness. And then you will see a Savior lifted up for you who is able and willing and happy to save. If you will trust Him. Well, This morning, let's deal with this first objection that the Jews might have had. We are the people who had the law. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew, it's not a bad thing. Right? It's, not, it's not a bad thing for the Jews to, be, to, to, to identify themselves as who they are. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, right? looking to the law, depending on the law, not, not a bad thing for the Old Testament Jews to look to the law for instruction. They boast in God. That's not a bad thing. This is another good thing to boast in Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, and know His will and approve what is excellent to other good things. And all of these five good things that Paul just listed spring from one bottom thing, namely that they were instructed from the law. In other words, the Jews would say, you know, we, we, we have boasted in our God. We have instructed others in the law. We know these things because God gave us the law. Now, they, honestly, they didn't do these things as well as Paul seems to be giving them credit for here. In a sense, he's sort of conceding the point because he's about to get to his main point. But we could sum up those first two verses here by saying that, that the Jews would say, we had God's law and we knew it and we boasted in it. Verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, indeed, all good things, all things that God did want Israel to be, all things that God did give Israel the law so that they could be a light shining among the nations. And all of this was possible because, the end of verse 20, they had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So Paul says, yes, Dear objecting Jew, you did have all of that, and that is what God wanted from you and desired for you. But verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. This is the point. This is what Paul's driving home. Verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
In other words, Paul says, yes, God did have a covenant with you, Israel, where you could be a light to the nations. And He did give you His law and His word so that you could know it and so you could teach it. But more than knowing it and teaching it, God wanted you to do it. God wanted you to keep it. And it was in your keeping of the law that the nations around you would see the glory of your God. But how did that go, Israel? Only a very cursory reading of the Old Testament would reveal that the Jews often were very little different from the pagan nations around them. The very thing that some Jews thought would be their their free pass when they stand before God on Judgment Day is the very thing that will stand as great, great evidence against them. I gave you my law so that you would do it, so that you would obey it. And because they failed to do so, the fact that they held the law, that they had the law, will stand against them. Now, I think there's a word here for us, of course. We who have the word of God Many of us who have spent time studying and knowing the Word of God. Many of us who have taught the Word of God. As Paul was earlier argued, it is by our life and how we live the Word of God that we can begin to discern our status with Him. And there is no way you can begin to live out the Word of God apart from the Spirit within you which is given only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me bring you to the big picture. Think about Abraham. God comes to Abraham. Abraham is not someone special. He is just a, a normal pagan, a moon worshiper, we're told. And God comes to Abraham out of all the people in the world and makes a covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. Everybody say Abrahamic covenant. Thank you. And basically what God to Abraham is this. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bring from you a great nation, indeed a great family of people. And they're not just going to be your people, Abraham. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. and They're going to be my people. And through them, I'm going to bless the world. We come to Exodus and suddenly we have Israel at Mount Sinai being led by Moses. And it seems like God's promise to Abraham is about to be fulfilled. Because now Abraham's family has grown and now here is a multitude of Abraham's children and now here is God entering into covenant with them and saying, I am going to be your God and you're going to be my people and through you we're going to bless the world. Here's my law. And as you remain faithful to me and keep this law, you will be my people and the world will be blessed. We call that the Mosaic Covenant. Everybody say Mosaic Covenant. Or, uh, perhaps more often, the Old Covenant. Everyone say Old Covenant. It sure seemed like Abraham's promise was being fulfilled there, but that was not the ultimate fulfillment. Because rather than keep God's law, Israel 
over and over and over failed to keep it. That is, as God blessed them and blessed them and blessed them with great revelation, with his word, with prophets, with his victory in battles, with his presence among them, with the temple and the tabernacle, despite all of these blessings, Israel continued to rebel and rebel and rebel, and they could not help but rebel because they were just like you and me apart from Christ. They were slaves to their own sin. And so, the very people that God said through you, my name's going to be loved and glorified, as Paul says here, instead, God's name was blasphemed. The pagan nations looked at Israel and the law that they had and the God that they claimed to worship, and they saw how Israel was just like them, and rather than saying, behold, Jehovah is the only God, the true God, the God above all other gods, the God to be worshipped and obeyed, rather they said, he must be just like all the others. God's glory was distorted and twisted by their failure to keep God's law. And this was no surprise to God. It wasn't a surprise to Moses either. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Look with me in the book of Deuteronomy. Come with me to the end of that book. Look with me at chapter 31, verse 24. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the word of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Take the book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you, have, you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work. Of your hands. What do we see here? What do we see here? Is this Moses saying, Hooray! God has made a covenant with us and he's given us his law, and now that we have his law, God's gonna bless us forever, and we're gonna be his people, and it's gonna be great. Paradise is ours. No. Even as Moses finishes the books of the law and commits them to the very house of God and to the people of God, he says, this is not going to turn out well. For I have already seen in my lifetime 
how you are all slaves to sin, how you continue to rebel and disobey. And therefore, God's name will not be glorified in you. And this covenant will only serve to bring judgment against you. And as you well know, church, that's exactly what happened. The judgment of God comes upon Israel as they are exiled, as uh, many of the tribes are destroyed and wiped out. And yet, in the midst of the old covenant reaching its fulfillment, uh, as they are judged, suddenly here is, here is prophets coming on the scene declaring there is a new covenant coming. With the coming of Jesus, with the death of Jesus, with the resurrection of Jesus, the old covenant comes to an end. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. Hebrews 8 even says that the old covenant is obsolete. And the new covenant begins. Last Sunday we had the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus say during the Lord's Supper? This is the new covenant in my blood. Everybody say new covenant. In the new covenant, God does what He did not do in the old covenant. That is, He not only gives His new covenant people the church, He does not only give us His law so that we know His law and so that we can teach His law to our children, but now God gives us new hearts that love the law and begin to obey the law and that we are able to fulfill the law in our own lives. This is the thing about Christians. It should be noticeable in our lives that we are different from the world in this way. We now, in Jesus Christ, have the ability to begin keeping God's commandments. Not perfectly. Not in our own strength. But as we grow in Christ, gradually over time, the Spirit working within us, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to Christ and His will is our desire and our delight. And this is the point that Paul has been making in Romans 2. He made it in the, the last two paragraphs. It is still undergirding this paragraph as well. Dear Jew, having the law, the fact that you received the law of Moses is no ground for hope on the day of judgment. Your only grounds for hope on the day of judgment is that you have come to Christ, you have been changed by Christ, and therefore there is now fruit in your life that gives evidence of this. How do we bring out the implications of this for us. Let me bring out three. Number one, very clear in this text, I think is the principle that we are to be doers of the law and not just hearers or teachers. Friends, it is so easy to sit and listen to the law, to listen to God's commands. It is so easy to teach others God's commands. It is another thing to be doers of God's commands. In fact, it is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. And yet this is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Friends, on the day of judgment, God will not be impressed with your knowledge of the Word. The devil knows the Word. 
distinguishing mark of a Christian should be his or her obedience to the Word. And so, friends, let us not deceive ourselves, as James says. Examine your life. I think a second implication, one that is preeminent in this passage, most important, or almost most important, maybe the next will be more important, but close to most important is this. We must not rely on having the law and the privileges of religion as being able to make us right with God and have heaven as our eternal dwelling place. Friend, I am glad, I am thankful if you have grown up all your life for the Bible. You should praise God that you've grown up all your life for the Bible. That is a gift and a privilege and a blessing. And if your parents brought you to church when you were young, and if you've sat under biblical teaching and preaching, that is a gift from God for your good. You should thank God for that every day. But you must not think that those blessings constitute your salvation. There are many who have spent their lives reading the Bible and attending church who never came to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And may you not be one of those. I plead with you not to be one of those. If the Spirit has given you any illumination at all to understand what the Bible says, surely you see that in and of yourself you do not have what is required to be declared holy by a pure and awesome God. Your hope and salvation cannot be found in yourself. It cannot be found in religiosity. It cannot be found in tradition. It cannot be found in your religious heritage. What you need to be right with God and to receive the forgiveness of sins and to have God as your God forever is Jesus. Have you come to Him? In your heart of hearts, you rested on him? Have you shown it by being identified as a follower of him by baptism? Are you counted among his people? Do you confess him each and every day as you live? Finally, the third implication for us is this it's all about the glory of God. Isn't that what verses 23 and 24 are about? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Friends, here is why looking at the fruit of your life is the wisest way to discern your status before God. Get the big picture. What is God doing in creating a people for Himself? Have we not seen at other times, in other sermons, in other passages, how God, from the beginning of all things, 
planned in his heart out of love for his son to create a people to give to his son as a bride. And wasn't it in God's plan to give Christ a bride that reflects his image? To give Christ a church that is holy and blameless and righteous, a mirror of who he is and his character. Indeed, a beautiful bride. And therefore, if you look at the the path of your life that you are going down, and it is getting uglier and uglier and more filled with slavery to different forms of sin, you can have good reason to doubt whether God is making you a part of that bride. But if by grace, by grace, by grace, through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through the church of God, if God is slowly taking you down a path where you are beginning to see fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, then you can begin to have grounds to say, God is preparing me for the great bridegroom. I am a part of that bride that God will give to his son on that great wedding day. And the honeymoon is what we call eternal life. So friends, what Paul is calling us to in Romans 2 is to examine our lives to see what our works say about us so that when we get to Romans 3 and the message of Christ crucified, we will see how desperately we need Him. We will see how desperately His work on the cross accomplishes for us all that must be accomplished so that we can be declared righteous in the sight of God and have Him forever as our God. So let me address you directly. What do you see when you look at the deeds of your own life? Perhaps a better course to take? Take some time this afternoon and ask some of those who know you best. Do you see evidences of grace in my life? And if they can point to evidences of grace, and if you can point to evidences of grace, rejoice and thank the Lord for every good gift comes from the Father above. And continue to put your trust in Christ. Don't put your trust in those works. Trust Christ, but know that it is His work accomplishing those things. But if, if evidences of grace are lacking, and all you see is sin, sin, and sin everywhere, then let that point you to Christ again. Run to Him. Throw yourself upon Him. Know that He is a great Savior for sinners. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. This time, I think what would be good would be for uh, just all of us to respond to God privately first. Uh, If you would just take a few moments and consider what was said, what you've